Uh, as we get started this morning and kind of bouncing off what Jillian just said, just this question for you, do you ever wonder where conflict comes from? As we begin to look at what James is going to talk about today, because sometimes we know, right? Uh, Carol Midwood was talking about her husband and uh, his, how he had gotten into an accident and how he addressed it. He dented the bumper by backing into, I think he was backing into his garage, and he hit something, dented his bumper. Really embarrassed by that. It's just not anything he wanted to admit, but he called the shop, got it in for the repair, got it back, but within a week of getting it back, he ran into the same wall a second time and dented his bumper. And he just really didn't want, he was so embarrassed, he did not want to call the, the body shop. And uh, Carol said, well, why not listen? She picked up on his embarrassment and said, why don't you just tell him this time that it was me? And he picked up the, the phone and he said, but, you know, maybe I will. It worked the last time. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes we know where conflict comes from, right? We, we invite it into the house. Uh, and it doesn't matter how well you get along. It doesn't matter how much you love each other. It doesn't matter how, how mature of a follower of Jesus you are. There is going to be, there is going to be, in case that's news for anybody, there is going to be some conflict in your life, in any relationship. Uh, uh, no two people are going to see eye to eye on every issue. And the more time that you spend together, the more opportunity you have to disagree with each other. However, I just want to say that just because there will be conflict, and there will be conflict in your life, just because there will be, doesn't mean you can't have peace. Uh, and doesn't mean that you can't have, have harmony. harmony. Conflict is inevitable, but it's not fatal. So, hey, by the way, if this is your first time with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. Whether you're here in the room or here online, appreciate you worshiping with us. Uh, we are in a studies that we're calling Achilles, and we're calling it that because for us today, there's this phrase that we use, uh, Achilles heel, which refers to a weakness or a vulnerable point in someone, even someone, right, who can be very strong may have a point of weakness. Uh, so we're looking at what James is telling us, and as we're walking through this, uh, we're looking at what he says that we can kind of think could be an Achilles heel in the life of those of us who are disciples of Jesus. And I know I've said this uh, each week, but I just want to remind you, especially if it's your first time here, I want to make sure you know, we, the word disciple is not a 21st century word that you hear very often. But it was very much a first century word. The most common name for a follower of Jesus was disciple. And so when we talk about that here, and we're going to be unpacking that, by the way, uh, Midweek Connect that's coming up this coming Wednesday, it will begin. And so if you haven't registered for that, you still can. And, and I hope you will. And we need to know because we're going to have a meal the first uh, time we meet. We're going to have a meal. And so uh, we want to make sure we're prepared well. But uh, so we're unpacking that beginning this Wednesday. And, but let's say this together. When we talk about a disciple here at MCC, it's really important that we all understand together what it is we're talking about. So uh, let's say this together out loud. You ready? A disciple of Jesus is someone who's following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. It's important that we know that together. And especially for those of us who are new disciples, as we talk about these things in James... And it might, I wonder if it felt like you're walking through a landmine. I mean, just like everywhere you step, there's just this possibility of something blowing up. But even for those of us who have been disciples for decades, regardless of how mature you are in your faith, there are still areas of your life that can be an Achilles heel, a point of weakness for you. So today, James talks about 
conflict. Anybody had any of that this week? I'm just curious, right? James talks about the two most common roots of conflict in our lives. So James chapter 4, if you have the Uversion Bible app, our notes are there. If you don't have that, I hope you'll download it uh, because there are some things that we put in there. want to make sure that you take home. You may want to refer to it later. But James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, is where we are. He writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, uh, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So James asked this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then immediately he answers his own question, right? He says, uh, Aren't they the desires that you have in your life? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? So uh, we're going to talk about that for a morning. That's the very first thing he points out is that my desires or my ambitions can cause conflict to be an Achilles heel in my life. And the reality is, by the way, we all have desires. At least I hope all of it when we have desires in different parts of our life. And not all desires are bad. Let's take a look at a few of them. Some of us are ambitious. We have desires in our faith. At least, again, I hope that you do. Uh, we're ambitious to help people become disciples of Jesus. We're ambitious to reach our community for the sake of Christ. It's why yesterday we had folks out here in our parking lot who were building a house to change the life of a family in Kentucky that uh, had been damaged. Their, their, when the high winds hit Western Kentucky, their lives were torn apart. We wanted to help them out. So we built a house in our, in our parking lot, and then we sent two guys down to Kentucky in a, in a truck, and they were going to drive down, spend the night, and drive back today. And I just started laughing when I pulled into the lot this morning a little after eight, because evidently they were ambitious to get home and be with their wife. Uh, and so, man, they hustled down to Kentucky, and they hustled back. And I just saw Tim a moment ago. Thanks for doing that, man. So uh, it's why later this month, we're going to host thousands of people uh, uh, on our lot here with Trunk or Treat as we reach into the lives of families, ambitious to make a difference in the lives of people who, if they died today, listen, we all know people who, if they died today, would go to hell because they don't know Jesus. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but it's a reality that we live with, and so we become ambitious about our faith. Uh, I hope we gain a reputation as a place where we are relentless in our pursuit of people who are far from God because we, we won't let that stand. We can't tolerate that. So uh, some of us are ambitious about sports. You love to run. You love to push your body to the limit. You play hard, but you play fair. But you don't just play to play. You play to win when you play. A friend of mine who coached our church softball team used to gather us up at the beginning of each game, and he'd say, guys, tonight we're here to have fun. Winning is fun. And you know what? We agree with them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's just being ambitious in sports. Some of us are ambitious about your family. You're involved. You're helping. You're encouraging. You say no to overtime at work when you can so that you can be with your family. You eat as a family. That's very important to you. You guard that. You vacation as a family. You get together regularly as a family. You make family time a priority because you're ambitious about how important, right, your family is to you. Some of us are ambitious with our possessions. You want to achieve financial success. You want to have security at a young age. So you work hard, not too hard, 
but you work hard. You have nice things. You like to take vacations. You recognize the lordship of Jesus. You don't compromise in that area, so you support generously his work, but you also wait and save to buy what you want rather than going out and putting it on credit. You, you wait and save. Some of us, uh, as our desire is more towards influence. John Maxwell, I don't know if you've ever read his stuff, says leadership is influence. And that's what you want to enact some positive change through the influence of your life. You want people to recognize your accomplishments. Maybe you want them to recognize your name. And, and I would say having a household name isn't wrong if the purpose is to be able to influence people for the sake of the kingdom. There are a lot of people who don't even try to have a household name. And yet they do because of their constant, constant obedience to Jesus. And I wonder when you look at this picture up on the screen, if you recognize any of those guys, you know, Tim Tebow and Russell Wilson, Tony Dungy, you know, all of, they're all household names, especially if you follow sports, because these are people who have accomplished much and they've used their platform to talk about Jesus and who he is in their life. They've influenced other people for Christ. It reflects what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, who whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as though you're working for the Lord and not for people. Listen, that, there are many ambitions that we can have in life. And really, the question isn't, do you have ambitions uh, in your life? Really, the crucial question and the question we need to wrestle with, with what James is saying, is do your ambitions have you? It's not do you have ambitions. Of course you do. At least I hope you do. But do your ambitions have you? That's what we need to be careful of. It's when our ambitions get out of control. That's when we begin to have troubles because church leaders can be too ambitious and they can replace helping people become disciples of Jesus with just having big numbers in their church. And what began as a building God's kingdom turns into for them building their own kingdom on earth. Uh, or maybe it's on the field of athletics. It's why some athletes take risks with their health by taking steroids or performance-enhancing drugs. I've seen coaches belittling high school athletes to be able to get more out of them. And I'm embarrassed to admit that this is one area that I have struggled with, and I still do at times. I remember telling my kids when they were little and growing up, I'm not going to let you win at anything. When you beat me, you will know that you have done something. I don't know if you did that. I'm not sure that was the right thing to do. And it is amazing, by the way, how your perspective changes when you have grandkids. I let them beat me at everything. Uh, <laughs> how about people who are ambitious with their possessions? You know, one problem that that causes, by the way, when we're ambitious when it comes to possessions, if we're not careful, is we can work to the point of ignoring our families destroying our families if we're not careful. This is why some parents need to hear, and maybe you're one of those parents who needs to hear, that this, you know, your kids would rather have you than things. And you need to be reminded of that. Wallace Hamilton wrote a book called Ride the Wild Horses. And the wild horses that he's referring to in this book are our untamed impulses that all of us experience and his question is, what do you do with these impulses in your life that beat within the heart of every person on earth? He said, out west when a cowboy caught a wild stallion, they had one of three options. First, they could shoot the horse and walk, which is what some people do today. There are those who think that all desires are evil and should be avoided at all costs. I, I had a family friend, a friend of mine, uh, when, when he was growing up, they weren't allowed to watch TV. 
anything on TV, nothing on TV, because it was evil. Uh, some people think the computer, the internet, is of the devil, and, you know, uh, there might be an argument made for that, but, and, but they stay away from it completely. They don't look at anything. Some people never eat ice cream. They don't indulge themselves. They see all of that as evil. The second opinion, the second option is to let the horse go wild, which is pretty much the opposite of the first. It's all about self-indulgent. Let your inner desires go crazy if it feels good. Do it, right? Don't worry about the consequences of sin. Who cares about what it's doing to your body if it makes you happy that's what, it makes you happy right now. That's really all that matters. The third option, and what I believe is the biblical option, is tame the horse and ride it, which is what the Christian life is supposed to be based on, self-control. It's not wrong to want or have accomplishments, but they have to be under control, right? They can't control you. It's not wrong to have or want money. You just can't allow money to become the master of your life. Jesus addressed that. He said you can't have two masters. Right? You can't serve both God and money. That's not wrong to be powerful or influential. Many lives have been saved because people are persuaded or influenced to become a follower of Jesus. If it weren't for people who wanted to be influential, there would be no church leaders uh, in the world today. But again, the crucial question is not do you have ambitions. The crucial question is do your ambitions have you? It's not wrong to have desires. They've been given to us by God, and in and of themselves, they, they are inherently good, but they have to be controlled, or they become an Achilles heel in our lives and cause trouble, not just for us, but the lives that our lives touch can be hurt by them as well. The second cause of trouble is found in verse 11. James writes this, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so I want to make sure you catch this. I remember I mentioned last week that every chapter of James talks about our words. Here he is again. My remarks can cause conflict uh, to be my Achilles heel. That Greek word for slander means to speak ill of or to talk another down. In the Greek, it kind of had an added uh, significance of speaking about other people behind their back uh, in a derogatory manner. It's backbiting. It, it's criticizing. It's finding fault. I don't know if you heard anybody this week criticizing someone else or finding fault with them. One time, Winston Churchill made Lady Astor so angry that she said, if I were your wife, I would give you arsenic to drink. <laughs> Churchill said, and if I were your husband, I would gladly drink it. At another time, she said, at another time, she said, you, sir, are drunk. And Churchill said, and you are ugly, and tomorrow I will be sober. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard people, right, go at it like that. Someone said, any fool can criticize, and most of them do. I don't wonder if you find yourself doing that, sitting back and criticizing, talking people down. Proverbs 15 reminds us that a gentle answer will calm a person's anger, but an unkind answer will cause more anger. You know, I'm going to bet you've heard of this attorney. He loved to attack his opponents. He would write anonymous letters to newspapers 
But in 1842, he criticized the wrong man. James Shields did not like being blasted by this anonymous writer. It was in the Springfield Journal. And Mr. Shields tracked, figured out who it was, tracked this attorney down who had publicly embarrassed him, and he challenged him to a duel. And the man was a writer, not a fighter, but he couldn't get out of the duel without losing face. And so he was given the choice of weapons, and he chose swords, because he had long arms, he hoped to use that to his advantage. He had also been trained at West Point, and so he was actually prepared to fight to the death. But on the day that they were to meet, uh, Mr. Shields and this lawyer, they were on a sandbar in the Mississippi River, and at the very last moment, their seconds intervened and convinced them to stop the duel. And the lawyer, from that moment on, left a changed man. He never openly criticized anyone again which would come to play years later when he heard his wife criticize the southern people of the Civil War. That's when previous attorney, then President Abraham Lincoln said, don't criticize them. They are just what we would be under similar circumstances. Paul would write to Titus, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Do you see the next words? To slander no one, which helps you be peaceable and considerate. Always be gentle toward everyone. That, by the way, may come in handy in our country with the elections in November. But how do we do that? Romans 14 says this. Let's try to do good. Let us try to do what makes peace and helps one another. So here's the, here's the answer to this, by the way. Are you ready? The first thing that you need to do is decide what you really want. I need to decide what I really want. That's James verse four, four, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So I just need to ask. I realize you're, we're sitting in church. I realize that. But have you chosen what you want yet? You can be a friend with the world, or you can be a friend with God, but you cannot be both. The ways of the kingdom and the ways of the world are in opposition to each other. You cannot you cannot choose both. That's why what Joshua said to the Israelites, all the way, we've struggled with this forever. All the way back in the Old Testament, as they have won the, the promised land and, and Joshua is about to die, listen to what he says. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's speaking to the Israelites. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And maybe you've seen these words or they're on a, uh, on a wall in your house. Joshua said, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So let me ask you again, have you figured this one out? Do you know what you really want? It's that second word in verse 4, by the way. James uses the word adulterous, which is interesting. Why would he use the word adulterous? It's because of who we are. The church is the bride of Christ. And what he's saying is if you are unfaithful to the kingdom of God with the way you live, it's like you're having an adulterous affair with the world. You've committed adultery. In verse 5, he tells us that God has this jealous longing for his people. He wants us to repent and to return to him. 
ladies, let me ask you a hypothetical. Or, uh, so let's pretend, ladies, all of you in the room are married and your husband is incredibly thoughtful and bought you a beautiful diamond ring. And on the inside, he engraved it with the words, all my love, all my love. And he gave you that ring. Would that not be, I mean, I, I'm, I'm imagining how you might feel uh, about that. But what if in the next breath he said to you, honey, I, I hope you, that you really love it. I want you to know I also bought another ring identical to yours that I plan on giving to my secretary at work. It also says all my love on the inside of it. Ladies, would that be appropriate? Oh, that's interesting. Not many people responded to that. Okay. Uh, in case there's confusion about that, that would be entirely inappropriate. That's not hard to answer, right? But here's the question. Have you accepted the, the world's value system and ignored God's principles? Or worse, you're trying to live in both places at the same time. I mean, you can go to church and still live in the world with their principles. It's an easy place to hide and pretend. On the screen are the words, God and world. And what I'd love for you to do before we leave this morning is wrestle with that and be honest enough to answer that for yourself, which one you really want. Because if you're going to have peace in this lifetime, you have to decide if you try to live in both, it's going to be constant conflict for you between the principles of the kingdom and of the world. But that allows me to do what I need to do, which is your second step. You just need to do what you need to do. Paul would write to the church in Rome, don't mistreat anyone who has mistreated you, but try to earn the respect of others and do your best to live at peace with everyone. In, in verse 21, he would write, overcome evil with good. And you know, more often than not, the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. More often than not, we know what the right thing to do is. We just don't want to do it. it it's too hard. It makes us look weird in front of our friends at school or the people we work with. You know what that verse says that we need to do? We need to do what is kind. That is, don't repay evil with evil. The verse before it says, don't take revenge myself, which I don't know about you, but I think that's hard sometimes. Someone does something to you. Someone says something about you. And we're supposed to do what is kind, do what is right. In other words, don't do what is wrong. And when James writes in chapter 4, toward the end of that chapter, verse 17 just stings a little bit. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you know the right thing, it's not just that you do, you do something you know you shouldn't do. If there's something you know you should be doing and you choose not to do that, that is also sin, which is not easy. But we all know, right, that what's easy isn't always right, and what's right isn't always easy. That's not new. We've all know, we all know that. Paul would write to the church in Colossae, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. The Greek word uh, that we translate rule uh, is actually the word for umpire, which means that God is calling the shots, and he's trying to keep us from anything that would rob us of the peace that Jesus died to give to us. So remember a moment ago, I said that before you leave this morning, be honest with yourself enough to choose which one you really want. Do you 
want God or do you want the world? You can't have both. You have to choose. You can choose the world and still go to church, but you can't follow God and choose the world. So our time of communion each week is, to be, is designed for us to make that choice again. It's a reminder when we hear what God has to say for those of us who are disciples of Jesus that we keep his death in front of our minds because there's this struggle in our life. It's for our soul between heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are fighting for your soul at this moment. And we either fight with or against Jesus when we have an Achilles heel that has been exposed, and maybe you have this morning, we either fight with him or against him by how we respond to what we see. So we come to the cross and we come to this time of communion and it's decision time. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, the Bible tells us that we make our commitment to him through our baptism. And if you want help with that, if you've never made that decision, I would love to help you with that. I'm going to be up front after services today. We can set up a time to talk about that. And we sang just a little bit ago. You and I both sang these words. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forevermore you reign. Yours is the name above all names. Is that true for you? Or is that just a song we sing? Is that something you live out in your life? Or is that just a catchy thing to, you know, sing on Sunday morning? Because this time of communion reminds us that we have to choose who's going to rule in our lives. Who's going to be the umpire and tell you what's fair and what's in bounds and what is proper and how we use our words and what our ambitions are going to look like and what's too far and what's okay. If you're a follower of Jesus, we remember Jesus' death on the cross to cover our sins. And it's during this time that we get to say thank you, right? Thank you for dying for us. And we confess where we have fallen short because we have. And we ask for his help that we might follow him this week. And we recommit ourselves to him. And we say, I know I've got this choice again. I choose you. I choose you just like he chose me. So we're going to pray, and then I'll walk us through that together. Jesus, thank you for what you have done on our behalf on the cross. And may we never forget that when we accept your forgiveness in our lives, that at the very same moment, in the very same breath, with the same motion, we ask you to be the Lord of our life so that when we sing something like you have no rival you have no equal your name is above all other names what we mean is even our own and the ambitions that we have or even anyone else's name that might cause us to say something that would somehow dishonor yours this one is really hard. 
So Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness where we have fallen short this week. And we pray for your help this week. As we choose you through this very act of remembering, Jesus, we want to honor you and live in such a way and speak in such a way and have desires or ambitions in our lives in such a way that they reflect your kingdom to those who live around us so that they will see you when they look at us. So God, we give ourselves back to you now. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We take the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was given for us. And as we do this, we remember that all of our sins, all of the times that we've fallen short, including this past week, including the week that is about to come, where our ambitions have gotten away from us, where our words have not reflected the kingdom, that he has forgiven them all. And so we remember. as we remember his blood that was given for us on the cross shed for us we remember that as we move forward his blood drives us that we might reflect him and so we remember So, Father, this moment belongs to you. How we live out what we hear from your word. How our lives continue to become a reflection of what we sing back to you, even now. God, we pray that you will be honored. We pray that the words that we sing will reflect the words that we say, even this week. We reflect that our ambitions would be brought under the authority of your throne. Help us to make the adjustments that we need to make so that we might honor you. And Jesus, we pray this in your name.